0: refined Labs, this is state of demand gen what's up everyone great to have you here welcome uh this event will be featuring our awesome friend the legendary marketer Gatano Denardi. So we're just waiting for him to uh to arrive he's known to be fashionably late so we're gonna give him a couple minutes and in the meantime I am going to uh talk to you and maybe facilitate some questions. So if you all are thinking we're gonna have some time here, the the we got a couple of awesome topics. One is and it's something that I've learned a lot from is by doing some direct to consumer marketing and then taking those learnings and then translating them into B2B is something that Katano has done in the reverse B2B and then he's gone to direct to consumer and he's gonna share with us what we've learned because there is a lot of stuff that happens in direct to consumer That there is to learn in B2B because B2B is in their own little ecosystem doing a bunch of this stuff that doesn't make sense, like building trade show booths and running content syndication. I just got got a note from someone from a very large enterprise organization with a screenshot from customers and customers complaining because they're running content syndication and then they're following up with content syndication leads. The leads are like, I didn't sign up for this. This is ridiculous. Why are you doing this to me? And all you're doing is just like, creating metrics and annoying potential your market so uh looking forward to oh he's here what's up g let's get you in here
1: hey man how are you
0: hey long time no see where (laughs) are you at you in miami
1: yeah yeah down in florida living the dream man
0: yeah yeah i'm uh i'm in boston currently but i've been in austin texas for like almost three months now living the dream as well
1: (laughs) amazing amazing how you liking it
0: it's great man cool you should come by sometime we can hang out
1: yeah, yeah you know I've, I've never been to austin and oh man yeah i've got a lot of incentive to be there so
0: <laughs> love it we'll do it all right well i'm looking forward to getting into this people if you have any if you have questions or things that come up don't f- don't feel like you need to wait for the end don't, um just drop them in the chat and then we'll collect them and then we'll either bring you on live or ask the questions we probably will have some time Um, But I want to get right into it because we got a couple of key topics that I want to share and then like get your learnings and then see if there's anything that I can add to the conversation. But the first thing just to jump right in is like you were mainly a B2B marketer, right? A lot of experience there and have it was not that recent. It's probably been what, six or twelve months now that you moved to Aura and went direct to consumer marketing. So I'd love and there's a lot of learnings when you move to direct to consumer and then you do marketing and that like B2B marketers sometimes never see because they don't get exposed to it. Would love if you could share a couple of the key like highlights and learnings that you got and what that means for the B2B marketers in the room right now.
1: Oh man, that's great. Great way to kick it off. I mean, my my mind is like going in so many different directions. I hope I don't rant or tangent too much, Chris. yeah, you can. If if you if you notice me like ranting, just kind of reel me back in. But I think like the the first thing that's pretty cool is that like you see the impact of like all the marketing channels and how they kind of work together. How the impact of some channels kind of spills over into other channels, and you also realize that like there's no outbound sales, right? So I think that's like the first big like shock factor is kind of like wow it's this is 100% marketing. So it's pure offense and you see how the things that are happening in one channel impact the other and we can, you know, get into all that I, I don't want to dive into deep just yet. But you notice that there's no outbound sales. So like there's no compensating for like bad marketing or lack of marketing with sales. You can't say yeah, we're, we may not hit our number this month. So we need to hammer outbound as hard as we can or something like that. Like there, that option just doesn't exist. <laughs> and and then, you know, the, the other thing is like, um, especially now, uh, given like the environment of today, you can't just like advertise, you can't brute force advertise your way into like demand. Like it's very, very hard to do that other competitors that have deeper pockets who are more established brands can just go to your affiliate partners for example and outbid you or they can go to paid search and outbid you so you actually have to get like more creative more strategic you have to figure out ways to fight back against that you know the the final thing i'll say is that storytelling and creative matters so much in in d2c so, um, I know that sounds cheesy. You know, you hear a lot of buzz and you know, you hear just a lot of stuff about storytelling and marketing and how important that is. But when you're um selling a product like identity theft protection, you, you know you can't convey the emotion of that marketing in like a display ad. So, you actually do need to create video content. In fact, I spent my entire morning reviewing video scripts. For YouTube. So like, you know, how many marketers on this call are spending their time, you know, working on scripts for videos? I I, probably not many. Right. So just, you know, I'll kick it off with that. There's a lot to unpack there, but I think that's a good way to open the show. Those are the things that kind of just come to mind right off the top of the head,
0: yeah, I love that. i I personally learned so much when I was running my own direct-to-consumer e-commerce store, right? It never got very big. But the thing that you realize is like your marketing's actually got to sell stuff. It's not like you need to get someone onto your website and then you can figure out what zip code they're from and then cold call them with your sales team. Like your marketing needs to get someone from the beginning to the checkout to a happy customer. And if you can bring that mindset into B2B, what you'll find is that if you do marketing, you can let buyers buy independently. And when they come to you, they're pretty much done. Like the sales team just needs to help them buy. It's a huge, huge superpower as opposed to helping the sales team do sales to actually do marketing. Another one that I think is uh, terribly undervalued in B2B is this storytelling and creative. Like the idea that you just take one little picture and then run your ebook on LinkedIn and pump 150K a month through it is just like, Oh, like the balance between the investment and the creative and the storytelling versus the media just needs to be totally rebalanced. Um, I want to get into so in the idea that marketing's got to drive all the revenue. What is the situation at your company and attribution? Like, how do you handle that? What? How do you do that?
1: Yeah, you know the the, the mirage of of attribution, <laughs> uh, and I have been really consuming a lot of your your content on that subject as well chris but um, you know we we have this we have the classic how did you hear about us running everywhere and you know th- there are some things that we can tag like we can tag certain kinds of campaigns like for example like we did a sponsored post with the new york times you know spoiler alert didn't really do that much <laughs> but you know it gets it gets the eyeballs out there it tells the story so th- that's the other thing i'm kind of learning too chris like i'm so hardcore like you know, performance, I'm very performance marketing oriented, but when you get into like a really big company um, that has raised a lot of money and valued at over, you know, two billion, you start to learn kind of the game. You know, there's components to the game at this stage that I, I normally wouldn't like be a fan of of doing certain things, but like I'm learning like big PR, what that is about. And there's 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 a lot of things in there that like are are revolving around like telling the not just the brand story but like changing the category in a way. Like mm-hmm. our CEO is always saying things like, "Yeah, digital so- security solutions haven't changed in over 30 years," uh, and that actually is true. Like when you look at Norin, LifeLock, McAfee, Vast, like you, you think about antivirus providers, VPN. There's some VPN for providers that are kind of changing the narrative a little bit. But there's there's things that matter differently in at this stage of the game, uh, as opposed to a startup. You know, I think a lot of people even on this call are like single marketers, uh, one man shows, one woman shows, or or very limited capacity marketers at small companies. This is kind of the opposite. But getting back to the attribution, it's how did you hear about us? With uh, a lot of certain campaigns, things are tagged with UTM so we can track certain things. But at the end of the day, also like. Even with content, we look at different kinds of attribution models. We don't just look at last touch, for example, for content marketing. You know, we're looking at assistive conversions, first touch, different kinds of models. But the reality is that we're still figuring it out. It's not a perfect science and uh you know i don't think any company has mastered the art of attribution um even at our stage so maybe i'll just leave that there
0: totally yeah i mean the idea that you get perfect attribution is just made up given the way the privacy policies work and how everything happens i will say that there is like i'm walking through the you know austin airport landing and there's aura everywhere there's Aura in the airport there's Aura when i'm walking to get my uber on the ground you all like there's definitely a very big create demand motion and things that are never going to get tracked offline like non-digital stuff i'd love to hear sort of like how you think about this these like offline channels out of home stuff like that blending in with your digital work
1: what you're seeing in austin is actually like a continuation move of something in in d2c that you, you know you might not hear in b2b is something called activations So we did an activation South by Southwest and what you're seeing at that, you know, at Austin airport, for example, and various other Uber pickup spots and, you know, localized ads in Austin are a continuation of that South by Southwest event, you know, and we we even just did the view. We had the the president and and COO of our company on the view. And so like that drove like a massive, massive spike in branded traffic and signups, for last week. And, and, you know, and, and this kind of goes into another thing, Chris, right? Like a lot of, a lot of marketers might see like a, a decline one week from the previous week and just miss that. Like, yeah, it was something like the view that drove an abnormally high week or some kind of event that drove an abnormally high week. And it doesn't mean that this week is bad. It just means that something happened recently that drove abnormally high, performance in one week. So um, yeah, I guess like getting back to like some of those things that are untrackable, like we have the problem of like not being as well known as Norton and LifeLock and maybe not even being as trustworthy because we're not seen as much. So like, you know, they're doing things like direct TV, late night infomercials, stuff like that. And they're also doing like some very, very expensive brand marketing campaigns. So we're trying to figure out how do we get the best use of our dollars Without just like blowing our whole, you know, budget on on the most uh, kind of default predictable moves. So we're just thinking smarter about it, trying to be more localized, looking at our web analytics, seeing where where are some of those pockets of traffic. How can we double down on that? And that's kind of how we're thinking about it.
0: Talk me through the activation. I think this one is fascinating because this is like the DTC version of field marketing, right? Like. The activation. So I'd love to hear more because I think that there's a lot to learn. Like the B2B field marketing is very sales oriented, very like let's network so that we can figure out how to get a meeting afterwards type of deal. Like I imagine that your activation over South by Southwest was a little bit different. We'd love to hear what B2B marketers could learn from that.
1: Yeah, ours is not sales-oriented at all. It's pure content creation, it's pure narrative storytelling. And we have like our CEO driving a lot of it. He's so good at telling our story and, you know, delivering the narrative. I think that's kind of missing in, in B2B as, as well. I think a lot of CEOs are trying to hide and even, do I dare say, outsource content creation. It just comes across as inauthentic, kind of scripted or just cheesy or corny or you know whatever adjective you want to use there, but like our CEO does drive a lot of the thought leadership for the company, which is amazing. He's it's rare, I think, to have a CEO that is so good at that. But if you do have a CEO who's a great narrative deliverer, storyteller, you know you should should definitely lean on that as much as possible. And then we pair him up with like investors and board members who are, you know we're very fortunate to have this advantage are extremely powerful people. One of our top investors and board members is a guy named Jeffrey Kassenberg, who was the former chairman of Walt Disney. So imagine what kind of connections that guy has, right? So we use him and our CEO, like for example, like panels, and we do interviews, and we have a number of different activities that are happening at at an event by South by Southwest. But the goal is to explain how are we different from Norton, LifeLock, a vast AVG, all these legacy antivirus uh, softwares that are out there. How are we changing the game? Why is this needed? Why is this a problem? It's all about the story, and then we we take all that all that content and we use that. We use that in our blog posts. We use that on our social feeds. We use that in our emails. We recirculate that as much as we can, even on you know more offsite channels, more PR, repurposing that to get more PR opportunities. More backlinks, which fuels the SEO. I mean, it's just like it it, kind of just keeps going and going. So that's how we think about it.
0: Yeah, it's the flywheel. So I got uh, two things. So the first one is that we had Rand Fishkin on at a previous episode recently, and we talked a little bit about how his thoughts have changed around the ideas of SEO, right? And you, I grew up in the mid 2010s as being like SEO was my favorite channel. You know what I mean? I crushed it. It was awesome. It worked for me. And over time, I've just sort of like, Prioritized it less. I would love to hear, especially given the move from be from, you know, category like VoIP phone systems and mature category with a lot of search volume to where you are right now. And when you're not that type of player, would love to hear if your thoughts on SEO have changed. Or um,
1: yeah, yeah. They they've, they certainly have evolved. Here's kind of what I'll what I'll say about like today. You have a problem where like. Google is favoring big domains, big legacy brands. And unfortunately, like they're getting rewarded for brand and for being a strong domain that has had a lot of longevity. So you can get away, if you're Norton or LifeLock, you can get away with ranking for a very competitive term and delivering extremely thin content the bare basic bones, you know, five ways to avoid getting hacked, right? And they'll rank for that, even though it's just very, you know, thin, flimsy, 500-word page, and they're good. If you're uh, Aura, right? To to try and rank for something like that, you, you've got to just like deliver an insane 3,000-word guide and build links and promote it for a really long time just to be at the bottom or midway on page one fighting for that non-branded traffic, right? Now you'll, you'll end up ranking for like a lot of long tail terms, but at at the end of the day, it's like, you have to weigh kind of the opportunity cost of like, should we spend all this time trying to do that? (laughs) Or could we be doing something else? Could we be spending time going extremely long tail and targeted and listening to like our sales calls, like listen to Gong and try and find out like, what are those like really deep pockets that like our competitors are probably not thinking about and just hit that And not worry about like, hey, this is our traffic volume growth and just find like those long tail pockets that matter or try and fight back against like all those same things that all of our competitors are doing. So like that is one huge problem in SEO. The other problem is that like it's all aggregates and paid content and, you know, it's stuff that's being gamed. So you're going to find better advice about like identity theft protection on YouTube you're probably gonna find better advice about it, real life stories, at least on Reddit. Forum sites are gonna be more honest. If you're talking about like, hey, who do you guys use for this? Who do you use for that? I, I still think SEO for direct to consumer in certain verticals matter, but probably not as much impact as it could have had maybe 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, and the, what you noted there, I think is an interesting effect that we're seeing as well in the fact that the content that gets delivered on page one of Google oftentimes is either biased not good or both, right? And so B2B, every buyer knows that, not just B2B buyers, every buyer knows that. And so what they're doing is they're circumventing Google to do what people would call top of funnel research or early stage buyer research. And they're getting that type of information from peers, social networks, communities, different places like that. Then they're just passing through Google when they want to buy. It's a really interesting effect that I've been seeing since as early as 2017, is why I've sort of deprioritized SEO. Now, I'm interested in from your perspective, and you probably don't have the exact numbers, but I'd love an estimate here with this difference between demand capture and demand creation. And when you're looking at this, like B2B companies are probably 95% of their budget goes to demand capture. We'd love to hear what you estimate the split is at your company from either a resources or time investment standpoint.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're we're certainly not ninety five percent demand capture. I mean, if, <laughs> if we did that, we we you know we'd be dead ducks. We'd be sitting in the water and, you, and we'd be drowning. When you got big competitors,
0: it's a losing game.
1: It, it's a losing game. I mean, aside from the budgetary stuff, like this is really the first time I've been pushed myself to think more visionary. Like to think more. I've I've always been against kind of like calling your category or calling your product, not the thing that it is. I've always been a fan of like being very realistic. I'm a realist kind of marketer and maybe, you know, that's my strength, but it's also a flaw at the same time. Like I, I struggle thinking, you know, long-term vision, right? Like when the CEO says like, Hey, you know, we don't want to call ourselves internet security because it sounds like 1997 Norton we want to call ourselves intelligent digital safety, right? I'm like, ah, man, you're killing me with the fluff. <laughs> but, you know, at this stage, I'm actually forced to really put myself out, you know, outside of my comfort zone and say, man, he, you know, he's onto something. He's right. You know, like we actually shouldn't call ourselves internet security, even though that's the thing everyone searches for in Google. You know, it is 1997 Norton. When you think of internet security, you think of like, you know, old shit. So, uh, you know, getting, getting yeah. back to like the budgetary stuff, a lot of it is uh, around like building that narrative, PR brand, like all that stuff you see at South by Southwest, even like our YouTube budget. We don't consider that performance marketing.
0: No way. You it's crazy. It,
1: it, yeah. Sure. Like it's crazy. Like creating educational video content. How can you say that that goes towards, you know, performance like <laughs> that, you know, of course it, it's all part of CAC and stuff, but. At the end of the day, I, if I had to estimate, we're much closer to like a 60-40, a you know, demand capture versus demand create, maybe 65 to 35, but we're, we're certainly not 95 or 90 plus demand capture. That's for sure.
0: I love that. I'm going to pull up a LinkedIn post for me that you made recently that I thought was awesome. And I just want you to sort of like expand on it because I thought I've never seen anyone uh, I've talked about how to structure a team. And I got to admit, like the way that you put it out here is better than I've uh, talked about it before. So I'm just going to pull it up here. <laughs> I'm gonna summarize, but uh, the post from three weeks ago I would structure a modern marketing team into five distinct units for optimal business performance. number one, funnel demand captures, number two, demand creators, number three, creative unit and web management. number four ops and enablement and ABM for B2B only and customer marketing. So I love these like these groups, especially thinking about your marketing team specifically different between creating demand and capturing demand and then measuring those teams differently. So I love this. Would love for you to expand on it. I think this is super smart. Like I've been calling it like combining brand and demand, but I've never set, thought about it specifically as these people are responsible for creating the demand. So yeah, what do you got for people to learn for this? Because this is groundbreaking stuff.
1: I, I, yeah, I mean, like I was just thinking about like, damn, if it was my show, how would I do this? Because certain marketers have certain strengths, you know, and one of the reasons marketers fail. It's because of this like weird pod structure that so many companies use. And, and Chris, I think you, you know where I'm going with this. I see you kind of nodding and smiling, but like, you know, here's a very common thing. You know, companies will say, we need a unit that will be focused on our CRM product. You know, one company I'll just use as an example. I don't know them. I, I don't work with them. I'm just going to use it as an example. Is like a Freshworks, right? They have a CRM product, they have a marketing automation product, they've got a chat product. It's not unusual these days for many companies to like not be a single point solution anymore, to offer many different kinds of tools. What they'll do is they'll be like, all right, we need one person that does like paid search to be dedicated to CRM. We need one person that like does social to be dedicated to CRM. We'll need one person that's dedicated to like content to be tied to CRM. We need one person that's like dedicated to like whatever other function after that you can think of in marketing, email, whatever, customer to be dedicated to CRM. So you have like one marketer do- covering like all areas of like the funnel for CRM, but they're only being measured by performance. Mm -hmm. So the the problem is that like, now, if you're a non-performance marketer, you might think that you're doing performance marketing because you have to be measured that way. It's like not your strength. So like one person doing social for that CRM product is like now has to figure out, well, I don't know, what am I, am I, I, they want signups, but like this channel doesn't really drive that. I, I, uh, yeah. like I'm i lost. That you're,
0: it's like not that you're not capable. It's that it's not appropriate to be in demand capture mode in specific channels, right? Um, it, yes. Yeah, yes. So it, it, forces, <laughs> it forces marketers, if you're responsible for the whole thing for a specific product to only focus on demand capture because of the measurement bias.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it just doesn't fit to certain people's strengths. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like non-performance marketers being kind of, pigeonholed into doing performance marketing, they're just not going to do, not going to thrive. Right. Like they, they're going to be kind of out of their element. Uh, They're going to be trying really hard, but they're, they're going to struggle. And they'd rather be doing
0: something else that works better that they, you know what I mean? That they're better at. Yeah, for sure. Right. Right.
1: And like, there's so many examples of this, like whether it's social marketing, content marketing for web, even copywriting, like I, I can go down the line, but in any case, My new proposed structure is the opposite of that. Instead of tying people to like all areas of the funnel in a channel and tying them to like a product. And this is also why I'm like really not a fan. You see a lot of like touting about this in B2B where they say like marketers need to be more like product managers or be tied to the hips of the product team. I think it's actually quite a negative thing to be pushing or promoting. Because product teams, all, more often than not, don't think about like demand creating, telling the story. They just think about like signups and sales. So when you have like marketers attached to the hip at like product, you get them to think too transactionally, too much like sales, and it can be detrimental. But in any case, my, my new proposed structure is like, let's have people doing what they're good at and tie that to the area of the funnel rather than the product or the specialty.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm with this. I um splitting it in right so if, let's just talk through the just the top th- two. The other ones are sort of support functions, but the top two demand capturers and demand creators. Like the problem in B2B companies is that they don't split these into two and then they they measure it only on captured demand metrics so that Companies want to do LinkedIn. They want to build a community. They want to do a podcast. They want to like do PR and things like that. They can't because their measurement system shows that it's failing, right? So by dividing this into two teams and then measuring the two teams differently, measuring the de- demand creators based on self-reported attribution, qualitative signals, you can come up with a bunch of measurement methods to measure creating demand. I and mean, then you can use your attribution software and things like that to measure capture demand highly effectively. And so I think that there's like that's uh, splitting these into two, and then but the key is once you split them to also assign different metrics to the team so that both can be successful in doing their specific job.
1: Nailed it, man! And I think the LinkedIn like social marketing is a great is maybe the best example of this, unless you have a powerhouse LinkedIn marketer who is an all-in-one encompassing, you know, tactician and mastermind strategist that can split these campaigns appropriately, can communicate how each should be measured and why, and knows the creative styles, the content styles that should be working for each. It's gonna I think it's gonna be very, very difficult to find somebody that, that can do that. Um, I think like SEO, for example, um, you can separate this out by like keyword bucketing. Like there are some very obvious like bottom of funnel terms that like could be kind of measured like performance. Those are often like branded terms, right? So like, for example, Aura versus LifeLock, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of demand because that is the area of the funnel that that intent is for. So like, you can go down the line for each channel and like how this differentiates or or would be measured differently. You know, there's, there's so many examples that we could pull apart, but like, to your point, Chris, it's like, you know... Measuring the person that's supposed to be creating engagement, like performance marketing, is just you know the one of the top reasons why like marketers are ripping their hair out today, and like why marketing programs are just not doing well.
0: And why B two B marketing is known as very boring, right? So okay, cool. Anyone, if you have questions, we're gonna move to Q and A in just a minute. We got one more little segment here, but would love. We already got a queue of people, so if you have questions, feel free to drop them in. It doesn't have to be specific to what we talked about. It can be anything. But gee, one last topic before we get there. Um, You mentioned video content at the beginning. And so as clearly like Refine Labs has been all in on video and more our video at the moment, more organic than like highly produced sort of like storytelling. Nonetheless, I think video content is like, especially when you think about distribution on social networks, like is absolutely paramount and and effective today. So we'd love to from the next Diva B2B to or a DTC, like there's gotta be massive differences in how those two organizations thought about video content, the amount they invested, the volume they produced at, the types of videos that they created. Would love to, for you to sort of like compare these back and forth so that the B2B marketers that might be more on the next diva side have some things to take away.
1: Yeah, well, for for one, for some reason, B2B video for social is like, it's very underutilized. Like when, when B2B thinks about social, unfortunately, the default is like display creative. So just like one static image and like lead gen. I think that's starting to change a little bit, you know, because people are starting to wake up and see like, damn, this shit just doesn't really work. Like, it, let's just say you're Alice, B2B gifting platform. How are you going to differentiate against Sendoso by just doing like display ads? You know, like people need to hear the, the story about like why you are doing something different than Sendoso. Otherwise, everyone's just going to bucket you guys together as yeah, B2B gifting. I don't really know what's different about one from the other. When it comes to like <laughs> video, I think in, in D2C, um, we use video for so many different things, not just like the, the things you might like, you know, expect, like for example, like YouTube pre-roll ads. And yes, we do those. And yes, we do have like some very highly... I would say produce like high quality style, you know, spent a lot of money on, you know, videos. But we also have like things where we use paid actors and we say, yo, just record this on an iPhone, send it to us, and we need to chop this up and we'll, and we'll, you know, splice that with other clips that we find from the news. We get, we get creative with like some of the things we're doing because how do you capture somebody's attention right away on social, especially in D2C when everyone is like, distracted and not really paying attention. And like, there's too much clutter. So you have to capture them immediately, immediately. You have, you have no time. You have to capture them absolutely immediately. You have to catch them. The way we do that is just by continuous testing, trying different things, using news clips from Fox 5 saying, the latest Facebook scams, then we'll maybe cut to like an actor that's saying, yeah, you know, I got scammed on Facebook and, you know, Aura helped me do this, blah, 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 blah. You know, of course, you have your little legal disclaimer in there that this is a paid actor. But the point is that we're getting the story across and we're capturing attention. And so, like, this is a very, I would say, advanced technique. Like, there's probably zero people doing this in B2B. But, you know, even the, the volume that we're publishing videos is is constant, probably 30, 40 videos uh, a quarter, uh, yeah. maybe even 50 videos a quarter. You know, most a lot of my time is spent on video scripts, Finding actors, like just thinking of the stories. Angles, telling stories. Yeah. yeah it takes a yeah, yeah. marketer
0: like a lot, I think a lot of demand marketers think that they're only on the distribution side, right? Like, the you need, as a demand marketer to create demand, you need to be on the storytelling side and the distribution side. You need to have the whole thing. Love that point there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess, like, the final thing that I would say about videos is like, and this is getting to the most advanced level possible, I think. Once you reach this, I I haven't even gotten to this yet, but I will get to it. Let, let's use the example of military romance scams, right? And this is this is actually sad, but it's a very, very, very big topic in my world. And, you know, we produced a very in-depth guide on military romance scams. We're distributing it. It's getting a lot of engagement. We look at time on page, you know, see if that's, this is like six, seven minutes time on page. Damn, this is hitting, right? and. You know, Most companies, when they want to pair video with something like that, what they might do is like just have somebody give a concept overview video of what military romance scams are and embed it into that content. It's a good match. It works. Making it even further, getting to that ultimate level that I'm talking about would be finding somebody that was actually scammed through a, a military romance scam, having them tell their story, give them a free Aura account and, and in exchange for, you know, telling their story and then promoting us somewhere in that story. I haven't gotten there yet, but I plan on getting there. And that is like the way I'm starting to think about personalization. You know, like a, a lot of, I think a lot of marketers, when they think of personalization, it's like emailed trigger here. They did this on the site, trigger them with this. Yeah, that's all good. But content personalization is like even an, a deeper level to it. And it's that relatability factor through storytelling, which I think is lost in B2B.
0: Yeah, I want to go deeper on two of these points. because I think it's gonna be really valuable to people. So I mentioned this highly produced, but then you went to this idea of like, I would call it more low end production, right? Actor clip, like stitch a couple things together probably would do really well in like a TikTok or a Facebook ad level environment. So I think that is a nice one. And the second, this place where you're going to see like, in the future, which I believe in a lot too, is I I think that about that is user generated content, right? Finding people that have gone through whatever problem and then having them incentivized or unincentivized, it doesn't really matter to tell their story and then use that user generated content. And then you can amplify that with your own paid or organic, however you want to do it. I think that that is a... I'm seeing some B2B companies pick that up, but it's very testimonially, You know what I mean? It's very stuffy testimonial. Let's put you in a room with a high production camera and have you talk for a minute and we're gonna spend the first minute of you telling us about your company that no one gives a fuck about. Right? So before you even get to the story, I'm gone watching the video because it wasn't interesting for the first minute. And that's what we see in B2B. So how do you think that, like, what's the the move for a B2B company that's stuck in that sort of like highly produced testimonial world to get to a more like user generated content view?
1: Mm, Yeah, I I think that that might be tough. But you know, a couple of things come to mind, right? Like, uh, you guys all know Basecamp and Jason Fried. When they started Hey.com, the the email uh, solution, they just did such a great job of explaining to you like why like email is broken and why something like Hey is a better alternative than traditional email. And um, one of the like big drivers of that was like the CEO doing these like very just sort of broken down, low end as you're calling it, down to earth style video, videos, right? Um, and one of the things I'll never forget is that when I went to that their site, that one of the first things I saw on the site was a video of the CEO Jason Freed just like talking about hey, giving a like a, a Loom style like kind of product tour in a very just informal way. I think it was like a 10 to 15 minute video. Watched the whole thing. I was like, man, I really want to try this now. This, this got me so jazzed up. It was so real. Uh, it really makes me want to like try this thing, right? Um, so like, in terms of how do you get your company to like adopt something like that? I think, like first of all, you need somebody in the company to drive that change who has some respect has some pull right and and you know it has to be somebody that has already shown some wins, so like if you're brand new at a company, trying to drive massive cultural change like that is probably not a good idea in the beginning <laughs> you know i would I would wait and I would you know try try and leverage someone that has some pull has shown some success, shown some wins, and then find like some really tangible examples um that you can share and then put it out there as like hey, I want to run this as an experiment so this way it doesn't sound like. You know, I'm trying to just change everything and every way that we do something, how we operate. I just want to test something. When you frame it as a test, it just feels so much nicer. You know, it comes across so much less threatening, so much less invasive. So that's probably the way that I would approach it. But I think, you know, to your point, Chris, it's like very hard to drive those, those cultural Operational changes and mentalities within marketing, but I think if you can win over some people slowly, but surely you might be able to kind of create a wave of change, but I don't think it'll be easy.
0: yeah, i like I like that advice from an organizational change standpoint, and then a couple more tactical details for people. If you're looking to have like either your users or people that could be your users or that are like your user that people trust in it, I think that finding people that already create content for social is a requirement. Like going to get the CISO that's never made a video before and asking them to make a video is probably not going to turn out the way that you want unless you're going to do the highly produced. So you need people that have already already know how to produce content and then can weave your story into their content, right? So that's one. People are used to call that an influencer. They're now calling it a creator, which is a much more appropriate name because that's what they're doing. They're creating content for you. and then. Also, potentially distributing it to their audience. So, creator, I think, is a much more appropriate term there. The things where this breaks down is that B2B companies do not measure appropriately to show any type of success for this. And because they don't measure it appropriately, they don't value the activity enough. So, they don't incentivize the people that they're asking for. Like, no, I don't want to make a five minute video for your ABM platform for 500 bucks. I'm not interested in doing that. Like, you know what I mean? So, there's a lot of like, companies that just don't appropriately value it, right? Like if you're trying to get someone to make a 5-minute video that has some poll about your product, that is a level of an endorsement. That is you someone creating content that you probably couldn't create on your own. That is your user advocating for your product and educating people. It's potentially them distributing it to their trusted audience. It's a, it's a $10,000 to a million dollar project depending on who the person is. You know what I mean? Like have Oprah do that for Aura or someone like that, like you'd get some real traction, you know? And so I just generally think that B2B companies miss on how valuable it is because of how they measure and how they think. All right, people, I'm pumped for this. We like some of the most valuable parts is in the Q&A, so I love this. I think we got it queued up. would love to uh, get a couple of people on here.
1: Yeah, so the first question is gonna come from Neil DePaul. Neil, welcome to Demand Gen Live. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thanks for having us on. you hear me?
0: Yeah, you're in, Neil. What's up?
1: Great. Uh, My question was just inspired by something that uh, Gitano said earlier about working with big PR, learning to do that. PR just tends to be one of those budget line items that is always there as I get deeper and deeper into the business and care more and more about how every function works. Um, I've started to, over time, think about what would I do w- with the PR contract when I inherit one? Do I keep it? How would I put it to work for the way that I think that things should work? So, Gitano uh, and Chris, um, I would love to know how you guys think about it, uh, how it fits into your models um, and the way you used to see things working kind of going into the future. Yeah, that that's a really good one. So, like, I think um, there's stages of the company's maturity and growth that will i think like kind of dictate a lot of how this will work you know if you're if you're a startup like unfortunately like i think big pr um is is only going to get you so far right like it's you know when you raise a round of funding or maybe you're doing like a marketing for good or you know you're supporting some charity or you know you're doing something to support ukraine whatever that might be uh, i think it's like it's tough to like say that you know, as a very young company that this will be like a groundbreaking thing for us, um, and it's going to be very expensive. Like I think a lot of PR companies are a lot of the- most of them are smoke and mirrors. Unfortunately, um, they're really good at creating promises that they can't keep. They're really good at like putting on this whole like fluffy presentation, and it's just like. A lot of it is just like nonsense. What it all comes down to is like, what kind of relationships do you have? What kind of connections do you have? And what what can you do for us? And like, you have to. I think you also have to be careful about like their rebuttals and their reasoning for like why they can't get you certain results. Like they might say things like, "Oh, you know, the product doesn't whatever," or "Yeah, there's there's just not much of a story here," or you know, whatever kind of they're going to give you a lot of excuses as to why they, they they can't get results, but. I don't know. I'm I'm like a big skeptic uh, at you know leveraging PR as like a big growth driver from like a young company perspective. But I think as you get more mature uh, as a company, and I think this is really like Series C and D and beyond, big style PR can you know have a, a pretty big impact. And depending on the category you're in as well, I mean it can really I think like help with a number of things. It can help with the narrative. It can help with the storytelling. It can help you kind of differentiate yourself in, in a cluttered or stale category. But it can also help like facilitate website growth, website authority, give you that like sort of like branded association with a thing. So like we're we've worked really hard to get aura associated with like identity theft protection and online you know safety. Right. Um if you're a young company you you may not need that yet, so that's just kind of my off the cuff thoughts, Chris. I don't know about you.
0: Yeah, um, so here's how we've thought about it. Our company's about a hundred people, and how we thought about it up until now, and then it'll probably you just sort of got like the big co version from Katano, and I'll kind of talk about the more early earlier stage or smaller. So in my experience, there are like there are prerequisites to even considering PR that you should have in your business. Should have a clear, compelling story that you're bringing to the market about what's the what's the issue and what's your what's your point of view on it. If you don't have something like that, you like going to do PR about how you raised a round of funding or how you whatever. I don't think it's going to be that valuable. Like it just isn't. It's not. It's not a good enough story. The second thing is you need to be able to produce content that communicates that story consistently and with relevance. Right. So that you need to be able to communicate that story. And the third one that I think is actually picking up that Katana mentioned earlier is like, you sort of, I'm not sure if you need it, but I think it's highly beneficial to have some level of an evangelist in your company that is communicating that story outwardly. Then once you have those prerequisites in place, in my opinion, like the old way would go out to a PR firm and then try and work to the PR places and like convince them to put you in there. And in my experience, you should rock on your own channels. So LinkedIn, podcasts, places like that. When you rock on those channels, then you get inbound to like, hey, do you want to come on my podcast? Which is a form of PR, right? Being a guest on someone else's podcast is definitely a form of PR. So you're an earned PR. So you get that through the earned, right? And then after that, people are like, hey, I want to write an article about you and Forbes. I want to um, have you come on this television show and talk about this problem. Can you come on CNBC and do this? So I've always I've thought about it in the reverse that most people think about it. People think, oh, we're going to go out and get PR. And I'm saying, no, I'm going to create stories that people want and PR is going to come to me.
1: Yeah, uh, man, you, you nailed it. Uh, you know, th- something that comes to mind, said, you you said Chris like you need a compelling story, you need an angle. Like I think uh, where a lot of companies miss the mark is they just say like, hey, you know, we have this much revenue, we need to be in TechCrunch. Mm-hmm. Or we reached some milestone, we need to be in like TechCrunch or like Wall Street Journal. Like we we need to be in there. Just get us in there somehow. Right? And you know the reality is that you're probably not worthy of being in there. You probably don't have anything newsworthy going on at the company. You probably don't have anything exciting to talk about. One reason Nextiva, my my previous company, got into TechCrunch is because we reached the milestone of 250 million in annual revenue, being bootstrapped, being unfunded the CEO put up his own money like 20 years ago to start the company. And like, that was it. There was zero outside investment. Now that is, whoa, okay. There's something there. So that was easy (laughs) for for us to maneuver, but a lot of companies don't have that luxury. So like in, in many cases, Chris, like what you're saying, uh, especially if you're a younger company, you're better off just kind of like trying to do as much of this on your own, meaning don't aim for wall street journal. But you know, if you see some website, talking about the top 20 list of sales tools, and you're not on there. Yeah, try and get on those lists, right? Like that's a much lower level of doing PR, but at least you're still getting out there, you're still getting some traction in the market, you're being seen, right? So I would go with those kind of more strap up your boots and and hit the ground running on your own, rather than paying some company 30k to try and get you into TechCrunch, And even if they do miraculously get you in there, you know, it won't be worth the 30k.
0: Right on, let's see if we can get one or two more in here.
1: All right, next up, we got Matthew Chanella. Hey, what's up, guys? How y'all doing? <laughs> hey, Gaitano. First off, happy that you're back in the States, man, following your journey, and uh, really, really happy to see you back here. I got a question about your uh, DTC experience compared to B2B. I'm curious of what's the one thing you've done in DTC that you never did in B2B that you've enjoyed the most? That's a great one, man. I would say that there's two things that come to mind like immediately. One is like the ability to really play a significant role in controlling of the revenue outcome through the website. So like because you're not playing the SDR to AE handoff, you're you're not kind of you're not you're not in these meetings with sales to talk about like lead readiness. There's no lead, there's no intent data modeling, nothing like that you can just like really get into the analytics and the behavior of the checkout flow. And you can experiment with that endlessly across many different flows coming from many different traffic sources. Like that is like so, so valuable. The other thing that's really interesting about B2B that doesn't really happen as much. And Chris, we, we kind of missed this one. It might be worth just bringing it up real quick is like B2Bs do like really shitty personas that like are not usable or not really worthwhile or not really valuable. Whereas like in D2C, particularly or like we go deep on customer research, like insanely deep, like we actually even get to the point where we do user research that makes them say, build your own landing page with these modules. Because in my mind, I'm constantly questioning what we're doing on landing pages. Is this too bloated or it's not enough information? Should this go here? Or should this go here? Do people resonate more with this or with that? And you're not going to get the full picture with just like looking at like cost per acquisition, cost per click. The, yeah. Yeah. The classic, classic sales performance marketing metrics that you get from Google ads. So like we actually go through this process of like, yo, build your own landing page in front of us and tell us why you're putting this module here. And we do that a lot. So like that has been like mind blowing and fascinating. And like, it, it's crazy to me that B2B doesn't spend like all their time doing that. Then, then uh, the other thing was um, influencer because um, we have so many, uh, especially with podcast sponsorships. Like I was trying so hard at previous B2B companies to convince my leaders to like, yo, let's at least throw some budget into some podcasts. I hear all these Credible people delivering this story about our competitors that makes me jealous. You know, I want to do some of this stuff. And like, I just couldn't get the, I just couldn't get the buy-in in in some of these cases, but it it was definitely the influencer podcast sponsorship move. I think like audio advertising is very, very underrated and powerful Avenue that in B2B is just kind of forgotten about.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, we're uh, for the record, we're doing some experimenting in podcast advertising and getting some incredible data and submissions coming through self reported attribution forms for $50 million SaaS companies. So I can confirm that this stuff is working. Cool. Thanks, everyone. This has been another session. We do this every first Thursday of every month. So the next one, I think we might be canceling because it'll fall like right around the 4th of July. So stay tuned for the details on that. Also, if you're here, this will the recording will go live on YouTube and the podcast tomorrow. So look out for that. And uh, love having you all here. G, appreciate your insights as always. It's crazy if you look back. We've been doing this stuff now for more than 2 years together. So shout out to that. Yeah. Uh would love to do another live podcast at some point either in Austin or in Boston. So we can get that scheduled sometime this summer and meet up. Austin, for sure. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Done. Thanks, everyone. Right. Hope you have a great rest of your week and a great weekend. And we'll see you back soon. Hey, everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. I just wanted to take a second to say to all the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you really appreciate you tuning in attending the live events engaging on the linkedin content and now watching us get started up and engaging on youtube and tiktok and so thank you thank you thank you to all of you and if you haven't already if you've gotten value from the podcast i would really appreciate if you could go to apple podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating it would mean a lot to me thank you very much and we'll see you for the next episode